In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For as long as we can remember, we've looked up to the skies. Today's guest, Larry Crumpler, was partly responsible for one of the machines we've sent to other planets, the actual Mars rover itself. He's going to talk to me about space exploration, its history, and what we can expect in the future. Welcome to Future Imperfect. My name is Dr. Larry Crumpler. I'm a long-time geology of things here on the Earth, plus geology of things on other planets person. So uh, basically, I got my uh, start in the late 50s, so when the space program was just ramping up, and Mars was still just a sort of a dim object, a dusty globe and telescopes, and all we knew were that there were dark blotches and bright areas. And then, of course, uh, subsequently throughout my career, I've uh, you know observed the progression of Mars from that sort of world to a world that is actually pretty complicated and geologically a lot like the Earth in many ways. And you know, it's been a fun discovery process along the way. In fact, I like, and especially in the uh, the book Missions of Mars, so the whole exploration program as being kind of like a 21st century natural history exploration of another planet. We went there, we saw, and we recorded, and uh, we saw new things, and we marched into the interior of the new world and discovered things that had not been seen before. So that's my take on the whole process. But anyway, my uh, specialty is field geology, and I uh, basically do mapping of the different types of rocks in the field here on the earth. And that means, you know, making a map of what you see as you're walking along and you have to walk over vast areas to, to cover a big square chunk of the earth's surface to do that. And um, so you do that so that you can understand, you know, what's happened geologically in a place. And so it's a long process of learning how to really do that and do it well and do it efficiently. And what I've done is to take that from the earth, that process, 
and move it to our robotic exploration of other planets, but in particular Mars. So I'm the field geologist on the, uh, the current Mars Perseverance mission to Mars. And I did something similar with the previous mission of the Opportunity and Spirit. And of course, I was involved even going further back with the Viking program with the orbiter uh, imaging team. So, you know, I've seen the whole process and sort of uh, had this parallel interest in both the geology here on the Earth as well as geology on other planets. That's absolutely fascinating. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me, obviously, is that Mars has been endlessly fascinating for humanity since oh, I'm not even sure when it was discovered. I mean, it was a, it's a wandering star, isn't it? In the, yeah. Back in the old days, before we were aware of sort of planetary bodies and, you know, the science had developed to any significant extent. And I suppose you know, there were the supposed canals that captured the imagination and, and quite a lot of lurid science fiction <laughs> written about Mars, I suppose as our nearest neighbour and, and a bit understandable, perhaps, that might harbour life that may or may not come down in rocket ships that resemble giant shells from naval guns and uh, and, and land on them. Um, I can't remember which common it was in London that they landed on, but it was definitely one of them. That... Yeah, that's right. I, I can't remember either. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's always fascinated people. It's fascinated fiction writers, science fiction writers, and now science fiction has become fact. You know, we are genuinely exploring, albeit remotely, other worlds. We're invading Mars. <laughs> I find this so wonderful because in some ways we... We almost need a, a new word for it because science fact sounds a bit boring. I kind of feel like we need a new term hmm. for science fiction that's coming true. That's true. Um, yeah. You know, I always feel it's, it's, oh, it's just, it's real now. It's like, no, come on, let's present it better than that. Let's keep the excitement going because we're still scratching literally the surface of Mars, I would imagine. I mean, oh, yeah. a tiny amount of it's actually being explored, would you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. That's a good point. You know, there needs to be a new term for, you know, the transition from science fiction to science fact, because basically what we're doing, we're in the middle of that process. So we need a word for that. But yeah, exploration of Mars, again, it's kind of like exploring the new world. You know, nobody knew anything about it. You know, you march into the interior and you see stuff. And Mars has been kind of like that. And for, you know, the history of uh, human thinking about Mars, which I guess goes back several thousand years, the uh, Chinese have recorded motions of the wandering star, you know, the fiery star, as they call it, uh, 3000 BC or something like that. So we've, uh, you know, kind of kept track of it, but we really didn't understand it much until, you know, the development of telescopes and Maybe the 17th century and beyond, we started being able to see things, you know, the blotches and things like that. And then, of course, it was the uh, Chapiarelli and Lowell who, you know, promoted the idea of the uh, streaks in the case of Chapiarelli and then canals in the case of Lowell. And that, that sort of uh, fired everybody's imagination. Even earlier than that, even the great cohort or <laughs> a peer of Darwin or Wallace had done a little analysis of, you know, whether there could be life on Mars. And, uh, you know, he, he concluded from the observations at that time, the atmosphere was too thin, it was too cold, probably wasn't really a, a good place. And <laughs> it was sad that, you know, that neither the astronomers nor the geologists could come to that conclusion, but a biologist could. 
But anyway, so that, you know, it's just sort of blossomed from there that people thought of Mars as a place of potential abode of life, whether, you know, people said it was possible or not, didn't matter. It had ice caps and had changing. I suppose life was plausible. It was imaginable in some ways. It wasn't impossible conceptually. Therefore, oh, let's get all excited about a celestial neighbor suddenly maybe harboring life and all the excitement that would come from that. But I wanted to get back to the concept of canals on Mars. Does anybody know, did he actually see, was he just projecting his own expectations or was it an error in the telescope? Do we have a clue? Yeah, I think uh, the thinking has been that, uh, you know, if you stare at something long enough, you start seeing arrangements of things that don't exist or you connect the dots. And there are lots of dark blotches and whatnot on the uh, surface of Mars. And, you know, if, if you decrease the resolution, you know, the ability to see details enough so that you can't see that they actually are contained in an area, you might start sort of linking series of those dots together and blah, blah, blah. But essentially, you can imagine canals or, or lines if you uh, stared at the images long enough. But the main problem is that all of the important details on Mars were just below the limits of you know, resolution. And it's in that zone where the human brain and eye has difficulty because we start making substitutions, trying to fit the puzzle together. So we see a shadow and we think it's you know a monster about the jump on us. And, so, you know, it's just um, part of our ability to sort of integrate uh, with poor information, or so we think sometimes. Yeah. And it still happens today, doesn't it? People see yeah. figures in burnt toast and patches of yeah. dampness oh, on yeah. the wall. It, oh, yeah. it, it's not an, not an unusual phenomenon. It's just particularly interesting that he projected his own concept of an advanced civilization onto this planet that he couldn't quite see. And, of course, canals were a big thing industrially, I believe. Yeah. And therefore, he wanted to see canals. Yeah, it was a convergence of things because canals were like the big activity for Earth at that time, you know, building all of the main canals that we use today. And so it was just, you know, part of the the idea that any really advanced civilization would, of course, be building canals. And these guys were so advanced that they built them all the way from the poles to the equators. And so I sort of got the idea that there were Martians, there was civilization, and that sort of spawned, you know, the what if they, you know, wanted to come to Earth because their planet was drying up and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it was just sort of an idea that took off and developed on its own, basically. And then we went there with Mariner 4 in 1965, and it was a cratered surface. It was the moon. It was a dead planet. <laughs> At least that's what we saw because we unfortunately had the accident of just observing the cratered parts of the surface, not the more exciting things. So it took us another decade or so to realize that you know there was more to it than that. I would think that science fiction does inspire real scientists. I mean, science fiction inspires me to think what if. Oh, yeah. And I can't believe that NASA scientists don't also love and read oh. science fiction and want to make some of it true. Oh, yeah. A lot of them are into the science fiction of the day. Uh, they know all sorts of details about Star Trek or you know Star Wars or whatever, and they continually make reference to some of the uh, classical things and uh, all of those movies. But to me, you know, it started, you know, of course, I grew up in the late 50s. And so I went to a lot of the movies that were taking place at that time that showed us exploring, you know, alien planets, you know, like 
Forbidden Planet. Remember Robbie the Robot? Yeah. Okay, that was a pretty cool movie. It was a pretty high budget movie at the time. And anyway, the, you know, they always landed on these planets that look oddly enough, like the, you know, the American Southwest, you know, very rocky, <laughs> very, you know, exposed geology and uh, lots of just, you know, unknowns going on. And, and the rocks were always red too. So basically, you know, Mars kind of fit that uh, science fiction perspective, I think, early on, or maybe vice versa. You know, the science fiction was driven by the thoughts about what Mars might look like. And so, uh, you know, it's a planet that was ready made for the imagination. Have we completely ruled out the possibility of, of life on Mars? Or are we still sort of in that sort of interesting gap of our knowledge where it's still possible, but we haven't got any evidence of it? Yeah, basically, it's the second. Yeah, it's possible, but we just don't have any evidence for it. And that's what this latest mission is all about, is going and looking at a place that uh, where, you know, there was lots of sediments laid down very gently, and so they can bury things and preserve them, and now they're being eroded out. And so, essentially, it's a giant fossil hunting expedition. But, of course, the fossils would be microbes, not bones or fossils or seashells or things. But yeah, it's it's still believed that uh, you know Mars was so uh, it was so incredibly wet in the first billion years of its life, and most of the stuff we see, most of the exciting geology we see on the planet, is uh, related to that earliest period when uh, Mars was just floating in water, basically. So Mars was a wet planet with a sur- with surface water and uh, presumably tides. Would it would have had tides? Probably not, although. There could have been you know, lots of strange events associated with uh, impacts, large impacts. There's uh, evidence for possible tsunamis from some of the proposed areas that were you know, flooded with water. Tsunamis on Mars. Yeah, 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 caused by impacts. I just, so there's all sorts of ideas. You know, it's all recorded there, so that's what makes it so much fun. It's fun to kind of go in and see if you can you know, do that. Sherlock Holmes. And how far in the past was this sort of in terms of years in the past? I mean, are we talking millions of years ago? Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, like 3.5 billion years to 3.8 billion years ago. And then after about 3.5, you know, things started calming down, but it was still pretty, uh, pretty active. We still had, you know, ice and the occasional um, river-like channel and, of course, lots of wokeness about that time. So Mars was a pretty active place uh, until maybe about a billion years ago. It kind of calmed down a little bit, started drying out. Although there's evidence for recent wokeness, as in you know, several million years ago. Um, so it's um, you know it's just been a long-term, gradual, slowing process of all of the geologic processes since about three and a half billion years ago. So at, at three and a half billion years, Mars was pretty much like the same condition as the Earth was at that time. And we know life got started on Earth in that time. So why not on Mars too? Maybe it didn't last, or maybe it just went underground. It's all sorts of hopeful ideas about, you know, where the life might be if it still exists. Is that presumably under the surface or in shaded areas or at the poles? Or Yeah, the idea is that atmosphere became too thin, it became too hostile there's no ozone layer so the uh, ultraviolet impinges on the surface and essentially bakes it uh, radiates it continually so the idea is that the life went to maybe underground we know it occurs deep in the earth and so um, 
that's one idea. And so uh, mainly we, we have been uh, sort of looking for evidence for past life to date. Now, the interesting thing is that the ideas about the life on Mars that are current or extant life, as we call it, is the possibility that, you know, maybe some of the lava tubes that you see in some of the volcanic areas of Mars, they're these beautiful open skylights looking down into these what are presumably lava tubes, which are a very common feature in areas where you have lots of lava flows here on the Earth. So these caves could be places or abodes of, of life because they protect it from the radiation. Sometimes there are places where there's interesting minerals precipitating on the walls of the caverns or sometimes gases, residual, not just from the volcanism, but just escaping from the the mantle, deep ground. Uh, uh, so there's all sorts of possibilities for current life. So the funny thing is to me is that for years, we've been looking at sedimentary areas, that is places where sediments were laid down by water. So we're always going to the mouth of rivers on Mars or ancient dried up rivers, at least like we are in this mission and looking at sediments that were deposited on the floor of you know, depressions or craters or lakes. And it's like, you know, we're always following the physical evidence for water. But in the book, you know, it's kind of the last pages, I predict that, uh, you know, it would be ironic if we've been sort of ignoring the volcanic areas because those are clearly, you know, just dry, dull, desert, lifeless areas. Before you tell me more about the book, obviously I'm aware of extremophiles on, on Earth. You know, there are forms of life that live in extraordinarily what we could argue are quite hostile places like black smokers under the ocean in very, very hot sort of pools of incredibly toxic water, for example, in Yellowstone Park and, and similar type of places like that, that presumably get their energy from the tectonic, the, the chemicals that are dissolved and the heat as well. Exactly. Yeah. And so in my very limited knowledge of this area, life has uh, quite a tenacity you give it half a chance, there'll be something there. And it's still quite conceivable to me that we'll find, I don't think we'll find civilizations that we recognize. I think that's pretty clear that horse has bolted. But finding simpler forms of life or less sophisticated forms of life, I think is, as you say, it's still open. Yeah. It's still an unknown. Yeah, it's still possible. And a lot of people are quite fascinated by that possibility because the introduces the idea that life isn't that difficult to start and so on and so forth. Well, that's right, because our sample of life, you know, when people talk about life and origins of life and things, and it's a contentious subject in some places. But, you know, we have one sample, which is the Earth, and we know it started here. It's clear it started mm -hmm. how it started. Nobody's completely sure as far as I'm aware. But if then the second place we look, we also find life, even if it's very simple, that's a two for two. Yeah changes the statistics doesn't it yeah it really does <laughs> yeah <laughs> such as it is yeah uh, but uh, yeah that's kind of the hope i mean i guess for you know constantly looking and of course there's also hope for you know looking at the uh, oceans under the ice of europa and uh, other outer planet satellites because there's so much water and the idea being that water of course is always you know the main ingredient for starting life you know, all they need is some sort of nutrients and energy source. So it could be, you know, it doesn't have to be sunlight. It can be, you know, thermal energy, like you said, you know, with the deep sea organisms that uh, live around hydrothermal vents and such. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's part of the big story. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Were there any very significant surprises when we first started to explore Mars? You know, we, we must have had a sort of a broad scope of ideas. Was, was, was there anything that sticks out in your memory as a, oh, wow, we didn't expect that? Yeah, of course, the first one was you know, seeing craters, but uh, then after we got over that and we started seeing all of the other exciting things going on on Mars, I think the thing that um, there was nothing that really stood out um, other than you know the discovery of individually exciting things like the giant canyons and things like that. But the thing that really uh, stood out for me was when we finally went down to the surface and um, we started uh, roving around, especially with spirit and opportunity. So this was like long after we pretty well kind of figured out most of the fundamentals about Mars. When we started roving across the surface, I was incredibly impressed by how Earth-like the scenery was. I mean, there's nothing alien about it. It's just a dry desert with rocks and other interesting things, and you can look at them and figure them out the same way you can here on the Earth. So that's why I sort of immediately drew in my you know, field geologic mapping experience, thinking about uh, what we can see with rovers, because it was just so familiar. I mean, it was just uh, it was rather shocking. Even the lighting is kind of like a late afternoon lighting, because the intensity of the sun is like half it is here on the Earth, and, uh, and everything's kind of red, so it's kind of a it's a nice fall afternoon lighting sort of on the planet. You know, and you're in this nice stark desert. Yeah, it's just a wonderful place. Very Earth-like, very comfortable feeling, frankly. But I'm aware there's the largest extinct volcano in the, in the solar system, in, in Olympus Mons, which is an enormous feature mm-hmm. on Mars. Uh, it fast, the scale of it is just extraordinary. But that's quite a remarkable feature of the planet, I, I believe. And t- tell me more about it, if you would. Yeah, Olympus Mons, I mean, there's evidence that it's been there for, well, building for a billion years. I mean, the whole area, which is called the Tharsis Plateau, or Tharsis Province, consists of several large volcanoes, of which Olympus Mons is the largest. And um, there's evidence that, you know, some of the lava flows from that go way back to um several million years ago so it was like building up building up building up and it's just been continuously active i mean some of the lava flows on that volcano are not um, more than tens of millions to 100 billion years old which is geologically yesterday basically by planetary standards 
And we do know that there are lava flows elsewhere on Mars that uh, are even younger than that, uh, millions of years age. Yeah, it's literally bulge on the planet um, that uh, has built up from volcanism over a large area since basically the beginning of uh, Mars um, you know, itself, uh, the geology. So there's very little evidence of you know any of this river beds and water channels and limited amounts of ice. So it's all been built up recently after most of the water features and things went away. So uh, it's it's a young feature of the planet. And it's been kind of interesting, you know, we have a seismometer on Mars, and so you'd think we might be seeing some evidence for uh, Mars quakes uh, in that vicinity. But so far, most of the Mars quakes have been kind of scattered around various places, actually in the place where some of the youngest lava flows are, which is not Tharsis. A few weeks ago, I think we saw a Mars quake that was uh, centered, uh, at least at that time, it was postulated that it was in the Martian canyons, the great Valles Marineris canyon series. So Mars is you know, still active. It's just not as active as the Earth. How big is Olympus Mons compared to, say, big mountains on planet Earth? Oh, gee, yeah. Well, Olympus Mons is, um, of course, it's, it's very tall from where you would measure the base. Uh, it's like nearly 25 kilometers high. Um, so you know, if you put it on the seafloor next to, um, say, the Hawaiian Islands, um, the Hawaiian Islands would uh, basically extend across the width of the summit crater on <laughs> Olympus Mons. And then the, the volcano, of course, would cover a significant fraction of the Pacific. And not only that, you could set Olympus Mons on the floor of the Pacific, and its summit would still stick up above Hawaii. So. Yeah, it's a big, big feature. <laughs> and with the with a very thin atmosphere, does it does it? It must poke up pretty much to the, well, pretty much into space almost. Does it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, when we did, you know, the uh, the first time we actually saw it, uh, it was during a global dust storm on Mars. It was just this dusty ball. That was Mariner Nine. That was their the the big mission that we actually went into orbit around Mars and we actually started observing you know all over the surface and we started seeing it that it wasn't just a cratered planet and it had all these wonderful fluvial features and, and canyons and then the, the first thing we saw when we went into orbit was a dusty globe because we had the unfortunate case of uh, arriving during a global test storm. so you had bad weather when you first turned up <laughs> yeah bad weather when we arrived and uh, so we went into orbit and all we could see was dust and it was like oh my god but gradually, over a period of weeks, there were like these several enormous, dark, round, crater-like things started appearing. And uh, looking at those, began to realize that these were not just craters. They were the tops of enormous mountains and that there were craters on the tops of them. My God, they're volcanoes. And the craters are, you know, like 100 kilometers across and they're like in a row and you know, the dust started settling, basically, and so the rest of the mountains started being revealed, and you could start seeing, you know, that it was like this giant volcano, you know, good grief. <laughs> and so it was just very dramatic. I mean, you know, Mars is always doing stuff like that. You know, it's making, you know, the whole thing a little bit more dramatic than it needs to be. And so that just happens over and over again. In my book, that's another theme, that Mars is always doing, you know, jerking us one way and then jerking us the other way and doing all sorts of antics uh, to, to make us, you know, either work harder or 
to uh, you know actually you know, just kind of uh, pull our chain, as it were. That's fascinating because you know the, the the concept of going to a new planet, getting there during a dust storm, not seeing anything, <laughs> realizing, oh no, what are we going to do? Yeah, worst case. And then it starts to reveal itself yeah. in all its splendid, surprising glory. Yeah. And you think, oh, wow. If it wanted to make an entrance, it couldn't have really organized it any better, could it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it couldn't. Yeah. Uh, especially after setting up the whole scenario, right? You know, yeah. the previous missions, it was all cratered. You're not going to see anything. Don't worry. And then you get there and it's like, you know, we finally got these high resolution cameras. We're going to look at it by God and... No, uh, there's a dust storm. (laughs) (laughs) Other places on Mars that you're particularly intrigued to see more about, you know, that you think are particularly, from your perspective, are particularly exciting that remain relatively unexplored? Yeah, basically the volcanic areas. Um, Yeah, my specialty is actually volcanism. And I think that uh, some of the volcanic features on Mars are pretty darn exciting. Uh, Some of the young lava flows are just, just incredible. You know, they're... They're so young, they still have all the, you know, the classic lava flow textures on them. And it's just so much to learn about, you know, volcanism from those areas. But of course, again, the irony is that's not where we're going, because we're always following the water to search for uh, evidence for past life. And, uh, you know, volcanoes are the last place you'd look. My guess is that's where we're going to find it. (laughs) (laughs) The last place we look. Well, that would be very Mars by all accounts, you know. Yeah, that would be very Mars-like. Yeah, I got to fool you guys. (laughs) That's that's fantastic. So, obviously, humans visiting Mars is, is it the next step? What what do you think about that as a concept? I mean, should we just stick with remote viewing and robots and things? Or do we need boots on the ground? Yeah, personally, I think we could do pretty well with uh, robots, although, you know, the missions are starting to get incredibly complex and it's starting to take some of the fun out of it. I sometimes refer to Perseverance as exploring Mars by spreadsheet. (laughs) But I think, you know, ultimately, you know, there's just a human uh, desire to have humans in the loop. And so that's really the goal is to send uh, uh, people to uh, Mars and... um, explore it and so i think that's probably the next real step the next real push although we'll need you know a bunch of robotic missions to kind of you know set things up for that but i think the ultimate goal is to get humans there uh it is expensive and as difficult as that is nonetheless it's just exploration uh, because it's not just getting them there, it's getting them back, of course. With robots, you can leave them there and let them keep doing their mission until then, you know, their life uh, or their batteries run out or whatever, yeah. or mechanical failure. But with human beings, I presume you've got to try to get them back. Yes, exactly. And again, science fiction would say that that's not going to be as easy as we would like it to be. Yeah, you can't just plug a human into a battery. You know? <laughs> they require all sorts of stuff, you know, atmosphere and this water and food for god's sakes they even it has to be bulk food it can't just be nutrients you know they have to like eat things so it's just a very volumetric sort of thing and uh, it's it's incredibly difficult i I, I could i could see the appeal of, of of sort of people being there but also these days with zoom meetings and you know people traveling less because of the pandemic and and suddenly realizing, actually, we can have a perfectly reasonable conversation via mm-hmm. electronic means. Yeah. 
I, I sort of wonder about the, the pristine nature of, of Mars, but I suppose we've already started littering it with our technology. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not exactly pristine from first principles anymore. But I don't know. I just sort of wonder. I like the idea of, of human beings and, you know, a base on Mars, but I also wonder about the hubris of it and whether we wouldn't be better off just having remote vehicles and doing it that way. Yeah, I think that's the way it's going to play out, though. I mean, yeah, humans will get there. That's <laughs> just all there is to it. But when is a big question. Yeah, yeah it's it's very difficult to do. <laughs> it's the journey, because obviously the moon missions were of a certain duration and a mm-hmm. period in history. It's a long time ago now, and they're absolutely superb. Watching their documentaries about them, it's just amazing endeavor. Mars is an order of magnitude more mm-hmm. than that, and it's an awful lot further. Basically. An awful lot further. Yeah. So that that's that's going to cost a fortune, I would say. Yeah, the numbers. You know, I, I lose track of the numbers because they keep evolving. But you know, it's like hundreds of billions of dollars. And you know, the fun thing is, people are always asking, "Well, when are we going to send people to Mars?" And it's like, whatever today's date is, add twenty years to it. And that's the first possible date. But uh, generally, you know, you need to add, you know, another few years because of cost overruns and problems. So you add 25 years to today's, today's date. And so the bottom line is, even if you, you, know, you made a real push for it, you, know, you wouldn't see humans on Mars until 2045, 2050, probably, you know, realistically. Because it just takes that long to do these enormous things. And there's a lot of things to go wrong and be iterated mm-hmm. on and yeah. Yeah. changed and updated. Yeah, there's a lot of things we don't know. So we we have to figure out how to be able to do those. Do you think people will ever, I mean, visiting, you know, landing there sort of once or twice, do you think the science fiction trope of Mars living will ever come true? Conceivably, I suppose conceivably, yes. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem realistic. I mean, nobody's living in Antarctica to speak of. I mean, there are lots of people visiting and lots of operations people living there, but whole families don't move down there to to work down there, at least not that I'm aware of. But on the other hand, Antarctica doesn't have the same draw as Mars, alien planet, uh, outer space, uh, just so maybe that will win out in the end and people will just can't resist. I mean, look at, for instance, the attempts to, uh, you know, the, the Mars One or, or whatever it was called, the, the one-way trip to Mars. Oh, yes. They had plenty of applicants for that process. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, there's just interest in doing it. And it's just people exciting. want to do crazy things, let's face yeah, it. You know, the, exactly. the world is filled with people doing crazy things and risking their lives mm-hmm. for endeavors, which arguably other people have done anyway and proven can be done. You know, they want to have done them as well. Mm-hmm. But um, I, was, I, I was going to say, because you talked a little bit about it being actually quite familiar to you as a, as a geologist. Where on the planet Earth would be the most sort of similar to the surface of Mars that, that you've seen yeah. so that people could sort of imagine what it was like? Yeah, you know, a lot of the driest deserts, places where there's almost no vegetation, Atacama, probably places in the Sahara, those all um, bear a great deal of similarity um, a lot of the physical process of wind blowing stuff around, maybe the remnants of volcanic rocks and things like that, and um, you know the occasional outflow of water or you know, rainstorm or something that leaves a big channel. Those are all sort of features that you kind of see on Mars, you know, stumbling along, you know, with, and so any of the really driest, absolutely driest deserts on the Earth. 
So the dry valleys in Antarctica are always a popular one because not only do they drive, they're also very cold because that's the thing about Mars that isn't immediately obvious. Most people see sunny southwestern sort of perspective, and yet it gets cold here in the southwest. And by the same token, it gets cold on Mars. It uh, drops you know, like 100 degrees below the daytime high every day. <laughs> so That's quite cold. Yeah, that'll tweak your circuit board. I'm telling you. Yeah. That's, that's quite extreme. That, that's really interesting. Um, the book you've been talking about, do you want to tell us um, the name of the book? Yeah, the name of the book is Missions to Mars. There's a number of books called Mission to Mars, but this is Missions to Mars. And it's basically kind of what we've just been talking about. It's basically the history of exploration of Mars. So my personal participation in the, you know, the, the space age component of that. Uh, thoughts about Mars, uh, how we learned what we know today, what it's like to explore Mars. I spend a lot of time talking about the uh, Spirit and Opportunity mission and what we learned, where we kind of pioneered the idea of living on Mars time and um, you know how to operate uh, robotic explorers on another planet. And uh, then I you know cover all of the missions, including uh, right up to the uh, current missions of the three missions to Mars, Perseverance, uh, the uh, Chinese. Mission Zhirang rover, and of course, the uh, Arab Emirates uh, Hope mission. So it's basically a popular book about Mars from everybody's perspective. Last question I was going to ask you, when you were growing up with watching science fiction, would you, could you send a message to yourself back then? Because um, you must have not imagined you would be yeah. one of the people yeah, actually doing this. Yeah, I mean, of course, when you're a kid, you, you always assume that you're going to be one of the people, <laughs> right? Yeah. But no, the, the the message, what I did was, you know, I, I, I try to tell people who you know, are trying to decide what they want to do with their life. You know, there's always several things that you're interested in that you can see you know, spending you know, your career doing. So you just kind of go along until one of them actually, you know, bears, you know, the fruit of you know, employment or something. And so even then, you might have another one that you, you'd kind of like to bring into this profession, too. And so that's kind of what I did. You know, I, I was interested in outer space, planets, surfaces mainly. And then uh, I realized that that meant I was really interested in you know, exploration and geology, not any of the other stuff, not, not the rockets and the space travel. And so I kind of like studied geology and then planetary science you know, in parallel. And I look for opportunities to jump from one to the other. And basically that's continuing to this day. So it was only in college that I actually focused on one subject and that was geology. And then, you know, it immediately branched back out again to, you know, the planetary and, uh, you know, the terrestrial earth geology. So that's the way I played it. You know, I, I knew I, you know, kind of what my interests were, you know, and just kind of followed where those kind of led. And eventually, you know, maybe something would come out of it. And I just struck a couple of gold veins here and there, but, you know, like participating in the Viking mission. And then, uh, you know, I got to the point where I could actually do some you know, proposals of my own and uh, got on a couple of the Mars missions, including the current one. Is there a technical name for a space geologist? Yeah, I mean, uh, these days, I think we mostly refer to ourselves as planetary geologists. In the old days, in the early days, it was called astrogeology, I think it was. And I think astrogeology sounds more exciting yeah, than planetary yeah, geology. That was, yeah, that was during the uh, Apollo um, moon mission days when they were training. They, they were talking about astrogeology. And 
But uh, you know, we re- realized that not, I don't know. A lot of people didn't really care for that term, so it gradually drifted and became planetary geology. Because I just I just think planetary sounds a bit like it could just be about Earth as well, and that's yeah. you know that's great and very worthy in its own thing, but it doesn't have the the snap, the sort of frontier exploration, yeah. the kind of yeah, science. Yeah. We're going back to science fiction again. It doesn't have the science fiction sort of thing going with it. Yeah, I think the thinking was that it was, you know, not a good term because it sounded like you were talking about astro being star, you know, something about stars or something. You know. We didn't want to have anything to do with being called astronomers, even though journalists <laughs> frequently refer to it as an astronomer. You know, it just it really sets us off. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, look, it's been absolutely delightful talking to you, and thank you for taking us through a very brief summary of some of the things that are in your book. And I'm just looking forward to ever new discoveries on, on, oh, yeah. on different different places. There's Absolutely. so much of the solar system left to explore. It's just endless. Yeah, it's a new world, basically. So we're doing it all over again. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on Future Imperfect. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for having me. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.